It's time for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Doug is a certified financial planner, providing you with a personal financial hotline to answer your questions about tax planning, investments, retirement planning, estate planning, and education planning. Doug and Linda are the owners of Lewis Financial Management, a registered investment advisory firm in Raleigh, providing financial and investment services since 1983. Doug and Linda will be answering your questions on WPTF's phone lines anytime during the next hour. Call 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF. Call toll-free 1-800-662-7979. And for mobile phones, it's star 680. And now, Doug and Linda Lewis and Money Matters. Hello there, North Carolina. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner, once again welcoming you to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters with Doug and Linda has been providing you with a personal financial hotline for all of your questions about investments, estate planning, tax planning, money management, and retirement planning for over 20 years. And again, with me as usual tonight is my wife, Linda, who works with me in our firm, Lewis Financial Management. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the show. Doug and I are the owners of Lewis Financial Management, a registered investment advisory firm in Raleigh, providing investment in financial advice since 1983. For over 20 years, we've been answering your questions on the WPTF phone lines. They are your questions and our answers. So sit back and enjoy, or if you're free, call us tonight on the open lines. We'll take your calls anytime during the next hour. You're free to call in and ask any financial question about your own personal financial planning. Call us at 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF. Or you can call us toll-free, long-distance, at 1-800-662-7979. Well, financial planning is everyone's business, and still for most folks, money matters are just a big puzzle. Folks have questions about planning for retirement, planning for a child's college education. They don't know the difference between financial planning and money management. They want to know a lot these days. They want to know what's a mutual fund, what's a limited partnership, what's a REIT, What's a will? What's a living will? And yes, it really can confuse you. But you're not alone. Because in a world crowded with new investments, changing tax laws, rapidly evolving insurance products, and volatile economic cycles, more and more people are looking for clear direction in their financial lives. And yet, unfortunately, the busier and the more successful they are, the less time they have to sort out their financial affairs. And people are asking, is there any solution? Well, yes, Doug, there certainly is a solution. Out of this increasingly complicated financial environment has come a new breed of professionals that are trying to solve people's money puzzles. And that's the Certified Financial Planner. It's the certified financial planner who offers something that people don't get from the traditional stockbroker, money manager, accountant, insurance agent, or bank trust officer. And that's a way to consolidate all aspects of people's financial affairs into one financial plan. It's the certified financial planner who knows how to pull together all six areas of a client's financial life. Doug, I think for many people, the first area of financial planning is cash flow planning with questions about their emergency fund, their mortgage, their credit cards, and reducing their debt. Well, yes, Linda. And yet for many people, the second area of financial planning is retirement planning. Those who are working want to know how to compute what they'll need to live on during retirement. 
and how much they should be saving for retirement. They want to know what investments they should choose from the choices in their company's 401k plan. Others are retiring and have received a lump sum payout option from their company's retirement plan, and they want to know, should they take it, and if so, how should they invest it? Well, Doug, the third area of financial planning that must be dealt with is estate planning. For most people, over their working years, their estate has grown. How can they reduce their estate taxes? And they wonder, are their simple wills sufficient, or maybe they should be considering the complicated world of trusts? If that's the third area, Linda, the fourth area of financial planning cannot be overlooked. This is tax planning. People are interested in both tax reduction strategies and tax reduction investments. Home mortgage interest, charitable giving, tax shelters, tax-free bonds, questions about capital gains taxes, estate taxes, gift taxes, and how to sell real estate tax-free using trusts. What a confusion. Well, Doug, we can't forget the fifth area of financial planning, which is insurance planning. How much life insurance does a family really need? Do they have too little insurance or maybe too much insurance? Should they have whole life, term, or universal? Should they have long-term nursing care coverage? You're right, Lynn. And, of course, the sixth and most important area of financial planning is investment planning. Here, the questions never stop. What's the best way to diversify my investments? Is now a safe time to invest in stocks? What about bonds? What kind of stock mutual funds? Bond mutual funds? Equipment leasing partnerships? REITs? CDs? Gold? Annuities? So, Doug, it seems that at last it's time for people to understand that a certified financial planner is really the only one who can tie together all six parts of their financial puzzle. And to you out there listening, if you've got a question on your mind about cash flow planning, retirement planning, estate planning, tax planning, insurance, or investments, call us now on the open lines and we'll answer your financial planning questions. Those numbers to call are 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF. Out-of-towners, call us toll-free at 1-800-662-7979. And if you just want to sit back and listen to the callers through the years, welcome to the show. Vic, Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? I'm going to be uh, selling stock in a company in the next couple of weeks as uh, one of the major stockholders. It's going to be a cash settlement. Uh-huh. It'll be a significant amount of money, and uh, I am not up to date on the current capital gains situation and whether or not I can reinvest it and not pay the capital gains or how I can minimize my tax burden. Yeah, uh, you need to be up to date because it, it may have an enormous uh, effect one way or the other. Give me some numbers, Vic. I can I can help you with it. Uh, first of all, is it a C-Corp or an S-Corp? Uh, it's an S-Corp. It's an S-Corp. And you're the uh, uh, the majority shareholder? No, I'm uh, I'm a majority st- shareholder, but less than 50%. We're looking at about three-quarters of a million dollars here. All right. That's your portion or that's the entire? That's, no, that's my portion. That's your portion. Uh, is it going to be an asset sale or a stock sale? Uh, it's an asset sale. It makes an enormous difference. If your buyer can be prevailed upon to buy with cash the stock rather than just the assets, a huge difference. What is the difference? Uh, the difference may be as much as half. Oh, that's a significant difference. Yeah. Um, let's go through the numbers a little bit and I'll see if I can help you. It's about a three-quarter million dollar uh, settlement. To me, yes. To you. And what's the basis? Is there any basis at all left? No, there's, there'll be no, there's no basis. All right. <clears throat> First thing you have to realize is 
there will be about uh, one hundred and seventy-three thousand dollars. And when is that due? Uh, that's due immediately. <laughs> okay. But then in addition to that, there will be another tax, which I can't compute with you over the air, but it may be as much as between half and that amount again uh, at the corporate level. And that depends upon I have to go ahead and look at your S-Corporation AAA account balance to find out retained earnings and so forth. Mm-hmm. That number at the office, by the way, is 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000. Now, the bad news is, let's say ballpark, who knows, you might be uh, losing about 260000 out of the seven fifty, and you might end up with $490,000, okay? All right, now, let's go through the numbers for a little bit, and I can show you how you can avoid the, the, the taxes. Uh, first of all, you take one position and you say, if I have $750,000, and if I could somehow magically keep all of it, then how much could I reinvest and get out of it? So let's say that you could go ahead and reinvest the whole 750, mm-hmm. all right, and you could put it into mutual funds that historically have shown you a 10% uh, um, total return. Sure. All right. Okay. So 750,000 there times your 10%. All right. That's a $75,000 annual, at least starting out. Right. All right. The other way, if you ended up with, let's say, $490,000. Well, that's just awful. Yeah. yeah, it is, yeah. isn't it? Okay. So the difference then in terms of the growth might be $49,000 versus 75000 Okay? Mm-hmm. All right. Now, if you go ahead and you establish a 664 tax-free trust, you can transfer the stock before you sell it into this trust. Now the whole $750,000 of stock is in the trust. You with me? Right. Your buyer can buy it. He can buy the stock. If he will buy the stock, then the whole seven fifty that he pays you will end up in this trust without any taxes at all. That's because a 664 trust qualifies as a charitable, non-taxable entity because you are setting up this trust designed in such a way that after a period of time, one day it will go either to a charity, a nonprofit, a university, or a family charitable foundation. That period of time can be as long as you want. It can be after you. Are you, are you married? Yes, sir. It can be after both you and your wife have passed away. It can even go into the lives of children. That's the best story. Now, the next question is, well, what happens to the money inside the trust if you're able to do it this way, right? Right. right. The trustee will invest it and control it. So the real question is, who will be the trustee? My advice is, and the kind that I do for my clients, I make you the trustee. It's a self-trustee so, trust. So you basically give the stock from your left hand to your right hand, and then your right hand sells the stock and your right hand pays no taxes. Your right hand reinvests the money. And now the $75,000 that first year is accumulating in your trust, just like a retirement plan. Think of it as a Kia or an IRA. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, how old are you? Uh, 49. 49 years old. The rules on retirement plans, as you know, say that under age 59 and a half, if you take money out, you have to pay a uh, 10% penalty. 
In such a retirement plan as a 664 trust, you do not. You can take money out under age 59 and a half and pay no penalty. Also, you can leave it in after age 70 and a half, which you can't with the other kind of retirement plan, and again pay no penalty. Mm -hmm. So let's say that you wanted to leave it in there for the next 10 years. You're 49 now. Let's say you wanted to leave it to your 59 because you say you don't need it to live on. I don't need it to live on. Now, you know, the other part of that scenario is if I could reinvest it, uh, maybe I could turn it two or three times. Yes. For example, using that 10% times the uh, the, um, the $750,000, mm-hmm. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. In 10 years, that would be about $2 million. But who ultimately gets the money then? You and your wife will get all the income off it. Right. All the growth of the principal, if you want. Right. When you work real hard and then somebody comes in and, and confiscates uh, two-thirds of what you've made. Right. <laughs> um, you know, that's not only is it frightening, but it also uh, can, can tend to infuriate somebody. It can, and it can be a strong deterrent, unfortunately. I had right. a real, I had a real sad one. I've had a number of these. I do an awful lot of these type of, of 664 trusts, and I like them. I think they're one of the most powerful vehicles in the world. But very few people know how to work with them. And then those few that do, do not understand the power of being your own trustee. Mm-hmm. That's sure. the crucial issue. In other words, universities and charities and hospitals promote these to their, you know, to their, uh, their benefactors. Their alumni and all mm-hmm. that. Sure. But, but they basically say, give us your stock. Yeah. We'll be in control and we'll go ahead and do it tax free for you and then give you a basically retirement income for the rest of your lives. Right. But the investment then is out of your control. Now the social capital portion, there isn't a person out there who's trying to whack away at you. It's basically your obligation to go ahead and uh, help society, if you will. The problem is, it's that the loss of control for most people, they just let their social capital be used through the tax vehicle. Right. On the other hand, you do have the right under current law to direct your social capital, even if you can't keep it. And the power to direct the social capital becomes a very, very significant um, a tool that you can use to leave a lasting influence on your community, to make more for yourself, more for your family, to benefit more. If you think about that 260000 let's say, that was going to go away. And by the way, it's not only that tax. There's another tax that happens after your death. You see? Right. So then you got that last piece that's going to go. Well, whatever that total number is, trace it in your mind, if you will, about where it goes. It's going to be taken up through taxes, and then it's going to, there'll be bureaucratic levels taken off it, and then it's going to go to help some areas of the economy or of society, if you will. Uh, there's nobody there who's just eating it all up after the bureaucrats get it. It's, it's going to go ahead and either house the poor or the elderly or take care of the common good of, of, the, of, of society. Supposedly. Supposedly. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. Supposedly. Ultimately, yeah. that's right. And that's exactly right. But, you know, you have the right to become what we call an economic citizen, a person who regains control of your social capital. Mm-hmm. And that really touches upon the area of personal significance because some people accomplish success early in life and others work most of their lives to accomplish it. But in either case, once success is accomplished, and yes, you've accomplished your own degree of success, then the human seems to strive for an even greater accomplishment, which we call personal significance. You know, for a selected few, significance is attained, you know, by political careers and military career. But for most people, however, philanthropy is the ultimate path to ongoing significance. Yeah, because you, you can share, you can help a lot more people 
and you're swinging with a little bit bigger bat that way. Right, <laughs> right. And if you if you grasp this concept of a of a six sixty four charitable trust, then you can go ahead and personally and powerfully impact your own community by directly supporting the services and the institutions that are going to going to perpetuate the principles and the values that most accurately reflect your own values. You see what I'm saying? In other words, in effect, you can become a philanthropist one of two ways. Either by paying taxes, you default to the government and you're a philanthropist that way, or you can be certain uh, that the, uh, the, 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 the goals that you have in your own values are actually accomplished. So with the 664 trust, you become your own bureaucrat. That's exactly right. You become your own bureaucrat and you direct where you want to have the greatest influence upon society. For some people, it may be a uh, habitat for humanity or cancer research or a, a, a perpetual foundation in your own name that would go on to educate children for, of, of lesser means from another country or whatever it is that has uh, deep feelings for you. But to be clear about this, then, let's say as an example that the interest that was generated off of the 664 trust was yes. Pick a number, say ninety thousand a year. Yes, that would uh, that would accrue directly to me. Yes, right. It all can go to you in one of two ways. It can go to you immediately, and by the way, it's paid to you by the trustee. So be comfortable. You're the trustee. Okay. Right. <laughs> all right. But number two, it can accrue and compound, and be paid to you later on when you need it more, which gives it the ability to grow into a larger principal. Right. And, and even that growth in the principal can come out and go to you. Right. So you basically control it. You need to have a couple of pieces in play. You need to have what's called an independent third-party administrator who does the tax reporting to the IRS that shows you're not paying, playing any hanky-panky. Right. Uh, but if you have that in place, you can indeed be your own trustee, and you can go ahead and really uh, use this thing in a wonderful way. Well, I certainly appreciate your time. If you want to call us at the office, the number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. And thanks for your call, Vic. Okay, terrific. Well, have a good evening. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Lynn, what's really new, would you say, in the world of retirement planning? Well, certainly as people are making transitions from either being forced to retire or being laid off from their job, there are a lot of transitions that they have to think about, right? A number of individuals in several weeks have called me at the office regarding taking the early retirement package, what to do with the TDSP, how do I plan for this transition, and uh, I wanted to just kind of go over that with you. It's crucial that people do have a game plan. And, you know, I remember one of the questions that one of the individuals had was, we have, you know, maybe $20,000 left on the mortgage. Should we pay that off with the IRA money? Or should we hold on to the mortgage? Another thing is, now that we've got this lump that's in the TDSP or in the, the savings plan, the retirement savings plan, is it in the right place? Or should we invest it in some other vehicle to produce more income? What are your comments on that, Doug? Well, we have an immediate knee-jerk reaction when all of a sudden a life that has been ours for the last 20 or 30 or sometimes 40 years is suddenly being rearranged for us either by opportunity or forced upon us. And the first knee-jerk reaction sometimes is to address one specific issue in a sense of panic, such as you mentioned, our mortgage. Gee, we got to get our mortgage paid off. Although, if you have long-term planning, it may be proper to address that. Sometimes it's not the best thing to quickly try and pay off the mortgage. Sometimes it may be. 
very often you're right. People think, well, maybe I could get my retirement money out, my TDSP, if it's a tax-deferred savings plan or 401k or IRA money, and do so. But that sometimes is the worst thing you can do because if you have to end up taking $10,000 out and paying Uncle Sam 3500 of that for taxes to take it out and another 1000 so you end up paying Uncle Sam $4,500 taxes to get 10000 out to try and pay off a $10,000 mortgage, it may be the worst thing you can do. And by the same token, you may be faced with the question of, should I go ahead? Like one gentleman I've spoke with this past week, he tried to figure out, well, if he got the retirement monthly check they were offering him, it would just meet his living expense needs. But as we pointed out and went through his numbers, we realized that's exactly right. On the other hand, his children could have been deprived of an enormous inheritance if he lived long enough and if he could find a way to have his cake and eat it too, to take the entire lump sum and to have that reinvested to produce enough income to still support him and still have the lump sum. He didn't have to give up his lump sum just to meet his needs. Now, if you're 59 and a half, you can take the money, right, in your retirement account without being penalized, correct? Actually, that's not correct, Linda. That's a confusion a lot of people have. You're going to pay taxes no matter what age you are. Exactly. <laughs> if you take possession, it's called constructive receipt. So let's say that you've got $100,000. If you say, I'll take that $100,000, I'm over 59 and a half, then you're going to go ahead and pay about $35,000 in income taxes to get your hands on it. On the other hand, if you're under 59 and a half, you have an additional penalty. So instead of paying 35000 in taxes, you'll pay 45000 in taxes. So all you get by being 59 and a half is you get the avoidance of that extra 10% penalty. Right. But in either case, you can do the IRA rollover and pay no taxes. And then only be taxed on what income comes to you, correct? Then you choose out of that IRA rollover how much you'd like to take out to live on and then pay taxes only on that. And if you're under 59 and a half, then you can go ahead and actually pay the 10%, the little 10% penalty on that monthly check that you're taking out of your IRA, which might only be $200 and you might have to pay an extra 20 bucks in taxes, but then you control it, not having it controlled for you. The overall advice is do not panic. Don't have a knee-jerk reaction to try and solve one specific part of your new world and create possibly another problem in another part. Don't try and solve the mortgage issue and hurt the retirement plan issue. Don't try and solve the cash flow issue and mess up the investment issue. Uh, look at asset allocation. All these things, my overall advice is get help with a certified financial planner to look at the entire picture from the viewpoint of total planning, looking at all seven aspects. The knee-jerk reaction, trying to do it yourself, is trying really to do, it's very similar to trying to do brain surgery on yourself. It's not a good idea, Lynn. Get your situation analyzed, right? Get your situation analyzed from a professional. And I want to commend all of our people out there. It seems like a lot of the folks that I speak to uh, at the office that call in have done a wonderful job of accumulating, but they get to the panic stage where they're wondering, now what? What do we do? Work with a financial planner. Certainly, if you want any information, I'll be happy to send you some. That number at the office is 8727000. Well, what do we do next, Lynn? Well, Doug, with regard to IRA distributions, when a person becomes uh, 70 and a half, how do you know how to take the money out of your IRA? 
That's a real interesting question. A lot of people want to know, don't they, Linda? You know, an IRA is a very interesting uh, vehicle because you need to know how to get the most out of it, and it depends on what age you are. First of all, uh, there are three methods that let you get money out of an IRA penalty-free. Did you know that? You can get money out of an IRA before you're 59 and a half years old and pay no 10% penalty. And this is important for people who are taking early retirement. They want to know, what do I do? I'm taking early retirement, but is there a way that I can get to my IRA or my 401k or my TDSP and not pay that 10% penalty? And yes, there is. And that's the substantially equal periodic payment story. Now, there are three methods to compute this that this this feature available. But basically, what the what the rule says is that you can take money out of your IRA or your retirement plan penalty free if you set up a payment schedule based on a single life expectancy or a joint life expectancy. And that payment must be made to you every year, at least annually, and they have to continue for the later of five years or up until age 59 and a half, whichever is the longest period. Now, if you fulfill those three methods, those three conditions, you don't have to worry about that 10% penalty. So you have to fulfill those conditions. Right. You've got to set up a payment schedule that never changes. Right. It's a fixed amount. huh? Right. And it's got to go until you're 59 and a half or five years, the longer of the two periods. But now that brings you down to what's that payment method? Well, what is? Well, okay. this is where the, the IRS gives you three choices. They give you, one, the life expectancy method. Number two, they give you the amortization method. And number three, they give you the annuitization method. And it's quite important to know how to work with those different formulas because you have three choices on setting this thing up. Life expectancy method? Yeah, it means how long you expect to live. The life expectancy method. This method is determined by dividing the individual's balance in his IRA by his life expectancy. Uh, and you can also uh, include your, your spouse's life expectancy to get a joint life. And this amount has to be redetermined each year based on that amount and so forth. Now, this method is the same one that you use when you get to be 70 and a half, by the way. This is what we call the minimum distribution method. All right. But this method, that if you use this method, this will give the smallest dollar amount of the three. You got three methods you can choose. If you use the life expectancy method, and remember, once you set this method up, you can't change it. You can't change it. Once you set up this method, you can't change it for five years or age 59 and a half, the longer of the two periods. So it'll be the smallest amount. Or the smallest if you use this, if you need a small figure, this would be the one to choose. Second method is called the amortization method. Now, the amortization method also gives you a level payment, and it's de determined by amortizing the balance over the life expectancy of the individual at what's called a reasonable interest rate. Now, that reasonable interest rate is determined by IRS guidelines, and they have a they say that you can be anywhere within eighty to one hundred and twenty percent of the federal midterm rate. So you can do some. You work with your financial planner, and if you use the amortization method, you can sort of fudge a little bit here and there to find out what is the dollar amount you need for your living expenses to get out what you need because you can't change it. If you do change it, any time in that period, every dollar you've taken out in the past for the last X number of years is going to be hit with a 10% penalty. The third one is the annuitization method. This method also gives you level payments. And this method will work very similar to the amortization method 
One of these two is going to be the best one for early retirees. It's got to be based on your living expense need, whereas the first method is the best one for people 70 and a half. It's important to work with a financial planner to figure out what is best for you because you can't change it. To any of our listeners, if you have a question or if you would like to receive our introductory packet of information, I'll be happy to send it to you. Our number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That is USA 7000. If you have some financial planning concerns or questions about your situation, get a notebook and start jotting down some of those questions and work with a financial planner. And I do believe we have a caller. Elizabeth, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I answer your question tonight? Oh, hi, Doug. Thanks so much. I learn something new every time I listen to you. Oh, that makes me feel good. (laughs) (laughs) I uh, I have a question tonight about zero-coupon bonds. All right. I have some Virginia municipal bonds Uh and recently moved to North Carolina, and I wondered if maybe you could give me some advice on what I should do about these bonds, if anything. As I recall, I don't think any of them have a yield any less than 10%. At the yield to maturity. Yield to maturity, right. Right. When they mature, how much are they going to be worth? It's about seven. Well, they maturity value seven hundred fifty thousand. All right. So they're going to be worth seven hundred fifty thousand when they mature. How much did you originally invest? Well, I'm not real sure. In all honesty, my husband bought these when our first child was born. Uh huh. And he has passed away, so I'm not real sure. And I have, I think I have all the original receipts, but I haven't really looked at that. Now this is interesting. Whose name were they in? They were in joint names, and I've had them re-registered in my name. That's a real shame. Sorry to hear that. Oh. Uh, you missed the step up in basis on yes. half of it, but you got the step up on half of it also. Yes, yes. Uh, well, we need to, it'd be very important for us to know how much you originally, how much he originally paid. You have no idea at all. I, uh, I really don't. All right. Well, that, that would be the, uh, the other part of my answer, but the next part of my answer has to deal with what they're worth today. What could you sell them for today? What's the value of them today? They're registered in a brokerage account right now, and my my last statement showed a value of a, a current market value of a, maybe about two hundred fifty thousand. All right, two hundred fifty thousand dollars is what they're worth today. Mm-hmm. Okay. Before I answer any more questions, what other investments do you have, Elizabeth, besides these zeros? Uh, stocks and bonds and mutual funds. How much do you have in stocks and bonds? In an IRA, a self-directed IRA, it. About $500,000. All right. And, and then in a personal account with cash and everything, and including those bonds, is another about $500,000. So about two fifty, excluding these. Yes. Okay. And, um, and what's that two fifty in? Stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and cash. About 50000 of that's in cash. All right. What this tells me, and I don't know, real, are, are you a high-risk taker, Elizabeth? Uh, I'm getting more conservative. Yeah, I, I, uh, as I, I get older. Well, good for you. Good yeah. for you. I mean, I, I, I really, um, I don't like what I see. I have to tell you that. I really uh, like no. that. No. Well, you're in a very high risk posture. Now, first of all, let me explain to you that if I add up this 500 and the other five, the 500 in the IRA and the 500 that you have here, that's a million dollars altogether. And you have 25% of your total portfolio in zeros. Mm-hmm. All right. You need to hold in the back of your head when I tell you, don't even argue with me, but just hold in the back of your head that zero coupon bonds are one of the riskiest investments there are, even though you don't think they are probably. Really? Yes. Okay. Now, hold that piece in the back of your head and let me go forward and show you that 25% of your portfolio is in very high risk. But worse than that, how old are you, Elizabeth? 
45. 45. This is terrible. Worse <laughs> than that, your, your portfolio is 500 of it is untouchable basically because it's qualified money. It's IRA money. Mm-hmm. So of your personal portfolio, which is 500,000, 50% of it is in this high risk po- posture. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if you understand that, let's go to the question of what is a zero-coupon bond, what is a zero-coupon tax-free, and why is it high-risk? First of all, it is extremely volatile. The value goes up and down. It's built upon the concept of leverage. Mm -hmm. And the longer the maturity, the more the value goes up and down in any particular day. It's just like the stock market. I see. Not only that, there could be little things along the way also, on this, the quality of the bonds, I think you want to approach it from the from a viewpoint of asset allocation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to look at the tax aspect of it, of course, also. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I asked you at the beginning, what was the cost basis? How much your husband paid for them? Yeah. And as you, and when did he die? Three years ago. He died three years ago. I'm so sorry because he must have been a young man. He was. My. He was. Uh, do you have children? Yes. How old are your children? They're now. Now they are 10 and 4. So your children, you've got young children to plan for also. Yes. Yeah, you need you need to be working with a certified financial planner to do the entire asset allocation, to do the college education funding, and to look at the tax aspects at the same time. The numbers to call during the week at the office are area code 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Are you working, Elizabeth? I am not currently. You know, I would think you've got two young children at home, and you and you don't need to be working. But it looks like your investment portfolio should be supporting you. Yeah, we're fine, and uh, with insurance also. Mm-hmm. Well, I I personally think yeah, I think that what you should do is reposition your portfolio. Aside from the fact I don't like you being two hundred fifty thousand dollars in stocks and bonds, you should be in managed monies. And what do you mean by managed money? You, sh- you should be in pools of money, spreading yourself over mutual funds if you want to be in stocks, bond funds <coughs> if you want to be in bonds. I think that you need to go ahead and uh, and look at your total position from the viewpoint of asset allocation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to go ahead and have a planner work with you and determine what is the proper unit size, whether it be 25000 or 50000 That's the maximum to go in any one investment. And that twenty-five thousand or fifty thousand should be in a pooled investment, not an individual. Not twenty-five thousand in one stock, but twenty-five thousand in a mutual fund that has a has a hundred stocks. You see, see what I'm saying? Uh-huh. And then what you and the selection of these funds should be based upon the managers, not the stocks. And of oh. course, you see what I'm saying? And what the manager's history? You want to look at the manager's track record. Yeah. You want to look at the manager's experience. You want to look at the manager's style. You want to look at the manager's philosophy of investment. There are some managers who are have a high beta. In other words, they move money back and forth real quickly. That means their funds may do excellently at any given year. And when you look at their performance history, their numbers, but it's a rocky road along the way because they're, you know, they're moving money back and forth. It's it, it can be up and down, up and down, and they may have ended up good, but can you take that sort versus a manager that has a low beta to his portfolio, which means He's done well also, but with less movement of monies back and forth, less buying and selling of stocks. You see what I'm saying? I see. Uh, These are the things you want to look for uh, or have a planner look for in the selection of the funds that make up your portfolio. And you should understand what you're doing and why you're doing it with each one and then understand the whole makeup. Mm -hmm. 
You see what I'm saying? Okay. Then, of course, the tax aspect needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, we owe, someone should also look at the estate. I see. I see. Did you revise the will after your husband passed away, Elizabeth? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, I, I have done that since I've moved to North Carolina. She, she might even need a trust, right, Doug? I, I have. She's probably got oh, one. Okay. I was thinking. Sounds yeah. like she's already done. She's already uh, taken some steps with regard to the... Do you have a revocable living trust? Yes. Good. Yes. Good. I do. I, I, my first priority was being sure that, that my children will be okay if something should happen to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think I've got that covered. But I was really co- um, interested in what you might think about these zero-coupon bonds. No, I don't like zero-coupon bonds. You, almost never. Almost always I recommend staying away from zero-coupon bonds because they are sold to people as safe investments, and they're not safe investments. They're very volatile investments. They're safe only if the guarantee is made good 20 years down the road. Yeah, I see. And even in the last three years, I've gone through a couple of iterations of having a couple of them called. You know, $5,000 of the the face value being called. Mm -hmm. A good salesman will probably tell you they're safe, right, Doug? Well, it's just, yeah, you can sell the features and benefits. That's called selling the sizzle, not the steak. Uh, yeah. And you really need to understand what is the steak that you've got, not just what's the flavor of the odor. Yeah. Elizabeth, if you m- would be interested in receiving some more information or, you know, I could send you a packet of information if you might like to speak with Doug personally. Mm-hmm. And the number at the office is 8727000. Okay. And that's in Raleigh. Okay, well, this is a real education for me, and y'all help me every time I listen to you. Well, good. Thanks for listening, Elizabeth. Okay, thanks so much, Doug and Linda. Good night. Bye. Bye-bye. What's new in the area of cash flow planning? You know, Lynn, cash flow planning for a lot of people is an area that they don't focus on. And some people wonder, is there a way they can borrow money? But, you know, you can actually, although a lot of people don't know about it, Linda, a lot of people have the ability to borrow that they don't know of because you can use your own mutual funds to borrow on margin. However, you should be aware that when you buy mutual funds with borrowed money, it's sort of like playing catch with a hand grenade. Sooner or later, it'll probably blow up on you. Well, maybe you could explain what is borrowing money on margin. Well, Borrowing margin money is a convenient source of loans if you're comfortable with the extra risk because what you're basically doing, you are playing with rules that are given to you by the securities industry, which basically say that you can borrow 50% of what you have deposited at a brokerage firm. So let's say that you've bought uh, $100,000 worth of different stocks. You have the right to go ahead and Borrow 50000 and what most people do, and the reason the securities world sets it up that way, it lets you use that $100,000 of stocks to borrow to buy more. So a lot of people would buy an extra 50000 uh of stock just using the 100000 Now, that's the traditional way of using margin. Any questions on that part? No, I think that's clear. Okay. However, what a lot of people don't realize is you don't have to use your margin just to buy other stocks and bonds and investments. I guess if you if you had a financial need and you've got this asset that's sitting there, it's yours, you can use it, right? Yeah, and what people don't generally realize is most people keep their ownership of mutual funds right back at the fund. However, if you ask the fund to send you those certificates, which you have the right to do, right? 
you can then send that certificate into a brokerage firm and now you've listed your mutual funds with a brokerage firm and if you put them in a margin account, let's say you've got $100,000 of mutual funds, you can now go ahead and borrow up to $50,000 cash to run your business, to buy a car for short-term needs. Now, do you have to, so are you, generally, would you pay an interest for, uh, charge? You do have to pay interest, but you're borrowing your own money. You don't have to pay the principal back ever. But there is a certain risk that you must be aware of. Yes, and what is that? The margin rules say that you always must have no more than 50% borrowed. If you do, and you go below that threshold, or above that threshold, excuse me, you have 48 hours to get your money in fast, or they will start liquidating your assets for you. So uh, that means that if the value of those funds happens to drop and you've borrowed the full amount out, maybe for buying a car, I've got a couple of clients that did it to run their business, we always try and keep the ratio way below the 50% line. So this is a, technically a way that people can use an asset or enable an asset to, to work for them, right? It's a wonderful way because you don't have to be approved. It's not like going to the bank. There's no approval. There's no uh, loan application. You just pick up the phone and say, send me 10000 20000 or 30000 So the, the story of using margin for mutual funds is a cash flow planning technique, which definitely is available, but it can be very risky. You need to realize that it can one day catch up with you if you're not careful. If you have any other questions, you can call us at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. And if you've got a question, call us on the open lines at 860-9783. Out-of-towners, it is toll-free at 1-800-662-7979. And cellular callers, it is star 680. Doug, what is new in the area of investment planning? Well, Lynn... Investors view their savings as a primary source for future retirement income and safety as their first objective. Many flock to banks and savings institutions to achieve this through FDIC insurance. They give up the superior return of real estate, stocks, bonds, and other investments for the security of federal insurance. Can you have safety as well as a higher rate of return? The answer is an unqualified yes through diversification. Let's say client A has $100,000 in a savings account earning 7%. He leaves his money in the bank for 20 years to compound. Client B also has $100,000 in savings, but diversifies into five different investments of $20,000 each. He chooses real estate, a stock mutual fund, a bond mutual fund, and two other $20,000 investments. Unlike client A, client B's investments are uninsured. Suppose one of his investments earns 15% over 20 years, another earns 10%, a third only earns 5%, and assume the last two earn nothing, he even loses his principal, all $40,000. Let's look at the actual results. Client A's money, compounding at 7% for 20 years, yielded him almost $390,000. Client B's five diversified investments at 15%, 10%, 5%, and two losses zero and zero, all over 20 years, produced $515,000. Client B earned $515,000 versus Client A's $390,000. That's a $125,000 difference. Client A used the bank to achieve safety, 
but paid a $125,000 premium for his FDIC insurance. That's the amount he didn't make by staying in the bank. Client B used diversification to achieve safety and received a superior rate of return by far. So can you get safety and high yield? Yes, through diversification. If you've been facing the question of safety versus high yield for the long term, I hope my comments have helped. Remember, invest wisely. And if you have any financial questions, call me at 872-7000. That's 872-7000. And remember, your financial future is at stake. Let's take another caller, Doug. Hi, Ed. How are you this uh, evening? A couple questions. Go ahead. Um, real quick before my phone pops off, and maybe you can answer over the air. All right. I have a portfolio of stocks. Right. They're all long-term gain stocks, which I don't think that makes much difference anymore. If I sell and take the losses, how long do, can, how long do I have to wait before I can reinvest in the same stocks? You or got, do I have to wait? Yeah, you got to. The wash rule. Uh, I think... Seems like it's 31 days is the wash rule. I'd have to look that one up for you. Okay, can I buy other stocks other than those? Yes, you can. Immediately. Yes, you can. Okay. You can do that. As a matter of fact, we do that very often in mutual funds. We go into a family and we move out when we're taking a loss and move into another fund in the same family. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, second question. Um, well, actually, it may be three. Matter of fact, let me give you my office number if we run out 8727000. Okay. And call me if we run out. Uh, tomorrow, whatever, and I'll help you if we run out of time. Go ahead. Okay. Next question. I have a uh, um, North Carolina mutual, um, North Carolina municipal bond. Right. I have approximately. Well, I ain't gonna get into that. I got quite a few. Well, and, I don't know your last name. Tell me what you're talking about. <laughs> a half a million. Okay. Okay. If um, if that's the only income I have during the year, other yep. than dividends from my stock portfolio, yep. Do I have to pay an alternative minimum tax? The AMT on uh, tax. My, my my income from the um, non-taxable income off those off those bonds will be approximately forty thousand dollars. Do I still have to pay? A, a, that's all tax-free theoretically, but do I have to pay the alternative minimum tax? I I want to hedge on that one. You have to call me on that one. I uh, I, I, I know think. Well, because I run them through my computer, I do financial plans for folks, and I see that happen, but I'm trying to picture how it comes out at the bottom. Uh-huh. I'll research that one for you. I really am, I want to, you didn't used to, but I think they changed something on that. I think you might. In other words, you, you know, for tax-free income, you, you really can't do it. Uh, yeah, but I can show you ways that you can do it. You can get tax-free income other ways than that. Okay. Give me a call, and I'll see if, and I'll look that one up for you, and I'll see what I can recommend. All right. Thanks a lot for calling, Ed. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, Doug, what's new in the world of estate planning? Well, Lynn, the Revocable Living Trust, an estate planning tool, has at least five key benefits which cannot be overlooked. First, there's probate. The court supervision of transferring assets from your estate to your heirs. All assets transferred to a trust before you die bypass probate and are not included in your probated estate. Second, elimination of time delays of probate. When the executor files your will, it becomes public record, and creditors are notified to make claims. The final income and estate tax returns are filed, and a minimum of nine months must go by before the assets are distributed to the heirs. It can often take years. When you establish a revocable living trust, you transfer all your property ownership to it, and the trust assets do not go through probate. They are taxable, but not probatable. Third, avoidance of contention. For example, you may plan to leave a large inheritance to a second spouse which would anger children from your first marriage. 
rarely have embittered heirs been able to invalidate living trusts in court. Fourth, privacy. When your executor files your will at the courthouse, it becomes public record. Because the trust is not filed with any court, it remains private even at death. Fifth, the trust can provide for a successor trustee to manage your assets if you are physically or mentally incapacitated. It can let you avoid being placed under a court-appointed guardian if you can't manage your own affairs. You see, you generally name yourself as trustee when setting up the trust, and then name a successor trustee, and since it is a revocable trust, you can make any changes you wish during your lifetime. The revocable living trust is somewhat costly, but more and more people are finding that it provides choice and flexibility. Since it's a revocable trust, you're never locked in, and since you're the trustee, you haven't lost any responsibilities of power. If you've been wondering about revocable living trusts, I hope my comments have helped. Remember, act wisely, and if you have any financial questions, call me at 872-7000. That's 872-7000. And remember, your financial future is at stake. Well, what's new, Doug, in the area of tax planning? Well, Lynn, to most Americans, income tax planning means collecting W-2s, 1099s, receipts, and canceled checks, and either filling out the complicated forms or paying for the help of a tax preparer. But this is not tax planning, it's tax calculating. There are five fundamental tax planning strategies for tax reduction. Number one, time your income and expenses so that you pay the lowest total tax amount over several years. Time the sale of your appreciated assets in order to realize the gain in a year when your income is down, you have a loss, or your deductions are higher than usual. Number two, convert taxable income to non-taxable income through tax-free municipal bonds. Number three, defer taxes to a subsequent year so that investment returns are earned on a before-tax basis. Invest in your company's 401k, if available, or consider an individual retirement account. Number four, Divert taxable income to someone in a lower tax bracket, usually children or grandchildren over age 13. Or if you own a business, it may be beneficial to incorporate. Number five, deduct your maximum allowable expenses. Alimony, business expenses, state and local taxes, property taxes, moving expenses, medical expenses, mortgage interest, and charitable contributions are all allowable deductible expenses. So there you have it. Timing income, converting income, deferring taxes, diverting income, and deducting expenses. Five strategies for tax planning. In 1947, federal judge Learned Hand stated that no one has an obligation to pay more in taxes than the absolute minimum allowed by law. Therefore, it's proper for you to get as much help as is possible to take advantage of the rules rather than be victimized by a higher-than-necessary tax bill. If you've been wondering about income tax planning, I hope my comments have helped. Remember, seek competent financial advice. And if you have any financial questions, just give me a call at 872-7000. That's 872-7000. And remember, your financial future is at stake. Why should a person invest in a mutual fund? The first thing is because a mutual fund is a way to not put all of your eggs in any one basket. It's diversification. One single mutual fund can hold more than a 100 or 200 stocks. The second thing is that you've got a manager, professional management. This gives you the chance to go ahead and not decide when you're going to sell your stock or you're going to sell your bonds, but the manager does. And I guess the third advantage of a mutual fund is they're very 
low cost to get in. And of course, automatically, you can go ahead and just say, reinvest my dividends. You can't do that with most stocks and they're liquid. You can change your mind and come out whenever you want. You know, another common question that people have um, has to do with our mutual funds like CDs or savings accounts. Now, that's one that people need to understand. The answer is no. Mutual funds are not federally insured, even if they're sold through banks. And that's important to understand. But funds don't make loans like banks do. So the risk of a fund actually going broke is extremely, extremely small. Write down some of the questions that you have, and certainly if there's anything we can do to assist you with this, we'd be happy to do so. And that number here in Raleigh is 8727000, USA 7000. All right, Doug, let's take another call. Hello, Jim. How can I help you? I'd like to uh, ask you what you're recommending on executors for a state of a married couple, who you should choose as executors. Well, it depends a little bit on the situation. Tell me a little bit about yourself, Jim. How old are you? I'm 68. 68. And are you married? Yes. All right. And your wife's age? 60. 60. Is it a first marriage or have you been married before either of y'all? Before. Both of you been married before? Yes. All right. Have you had children from either marriage before yourselves? Yes. So both of you have children from previous marriages? Yes. And also children from your present marriage? No. No children between the two of you. Are you keeping your assets separated? Do you have a prenuptial? Yes. All right. So the combined size of the total estate right now, looking on a financial statement of the two of you, what would that be? I'm going to guess about $2 million. All right. So you got $2 million between the two of you all on your financial statement. Right. And uh, what kind of estate planning has been done thus far? We have done some of the usual things. You both have uh, wills? Do you, do you have, yes, we've done... That sort of thing, and as you folks know better than I, you have to review the wills regularly, which we try to do. Well, what I was wondering is, do you have any trust set up? Do you have revocable? No, not yet. All right. No revocable living trust set up yet? No. All right. And you have a simple will right now for each of y'all, which was created when? Uh, it was reviewed recently, as a matter of fact. All right. Where do you want your assets to go? Well, we're, we're, we're trying to uh, decide that. There will be some inheritance also, which we can't. One we can't depend on, but one we must consider as a possibility. One coming to you and your wife? Yes. Of the approximate $2 million combined estate, about how does it break out? Is it at all equal? Probably, no, probably be uh, 60-40 or, or with my wife having the larger estate. All right. So, But even so, you yourself with 40%, you're looking at maybe 800 or more yourself. Maybe, yes. All right. Okay, well, here's what needs to happen. You want to have revocable living trust established, each of you. You establish a trust, and you transfer your assets into this trust, everything you own that can be transferred into this trust. Now, you identify the trustee of this trust as the one who's going to control it, and you want to be your own trustee. So you're simply moving it from your right hand to your left hand. However, now, at the time of your death, there'll be nothing to have to go through probate for a will or for an executor. You with me so far? Yes. How much of the 800000 is in retirement assets? Well, probably half of it. All right. So what you want to do, the four hundred cannot. The, the 400 retirement assets can't go into a revocable trust. Okay. But the other 400 can be transferred into a revocable living trust with yourself as trustee. That means that should you die the next day, the 400000 in the IRA or in the retirement plan will pass according to whomever the beneficiary is, and there's no executor needed for that. 
the 400 that's in the revocable living trust will not go through probate because probate is only what's owned by you personally at your death, which would be zero. Mm-hmm. You with me so far? Mm-hmm. All right. Now, once we've, if we've laid out this schematic, at this point, there's no need for an executor. However, we generally create what's called a pour-over will, which is a simple little will that says, anything I forgot to put in my revocable living trust, throw it over there for me. And in that case, yes, an executor uh, is necessary. But with the real question then is going over to the trust and going to the IRA beneficiaries. And everything I tell you is duplicated by your wife identically. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, at your death, do you want any of your assets to pass to her? Yes, and we're working on how that will break down. And then do you want her to have the use of those assets only and the principal to go to your children afterwards? Or do you want her to have the principal and the income of, of those, since she already has a sizable estate of her own? Well, you're asking a good question. I guess we're in the process of deciding that. All right. I would suggest, number one, you should meet with a certified financial planner and walk through each of these questions because each of them have certain repercussions. Jim, you can call me at the office at 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. Okay. Because, for example... If you want your wife to have access to the income off of your assets, but not to have the principal, namely let the principal go to your children after she passes away, then you could establish inside the revocable living trust death instructions, which are called testamentary instructions, just as if they were written in your will, saying, I want so much of my stuff to go into a trust of which she gets the income, but not the principal. Then the question is, who is going to be the manager of that trust? That's the trustee. Now, in some cases, you make her the trustee. If you're concerned that she might remarry and her next husband would possibly have a financial crisis that tempted her to access those the principal and deprive your children of their estate, you can put things like Q-tip provisions, which are uh, provisions that insist that the principal only go to the children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this could be vice versa, too. Exactly. Okay. Now, I am not an attorney, so I need to qualify that I'm not telling, giving you legal advice on the air. I'm just giving you stance. No, 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 I understand it. Okay. All of these are things that I do in my office every day when I'm going, when I'm strategizing with my clients on their financial uh, uh, plan in the estate section. Mm-hmm. But the questions need to be thought out carefully in terms of what if, what if, what if, what if. Okay. You can build it as flexibly as you want, but the bottom line is this. If you move everything from yours into trust, then the executor is, an, is, is a meaningless party. The real person to identify now is who will be the trustee controlling the trust. Uh-huh. During your lifetime, you are the trustee. But if you become disabled, have a stroke or something, then who do you want to control those assets to help take care of you? Okay. Should, should it be your spouse or should it be maybe one of your children? And over in her case, should it be you or should it be one of the children? We it, have pretty much decided it should be one of us okay. because uh, the complications of a large family. All right. And right. that's very and that's very often the issue there. What do you do with children and children issues and spouses of children? Uh it becomes it becomes very interesting when, when we lay out all the pieces in my office and go through all of them, all of a sudden it comes up. Sometimes the financial planner is asked to be a a, a a contingent or a subsequent trustee behind yeah. the, the second one, let's say. Okay. Sometimes there's a trusted child uh, who is most responsible. But the trustee is the party who replaces the issue of executor. And then the types of trust 
will define what type of trustee. Mm-hmm. I hope I've given you enough just as a way to start yes, thinking about it. Yes, you it. have, and I, I appreciate it very much. Yeah, you know, one thing that might be good, Jim, is you, since you and your wife do have some questions, and, of course, you're making these decisions, get a notebook and just jot down some of these issues that you're concerned about mm-hmm. and, of course, work with a financial planner that can assist you so that your comfort level is at ease and that all of your desires are, are uh, one instructed. Thing, yeah, one thing that I make as an overriding principle in all of our estate plan recommendations of no-nos of who not to do, we never have a bank as a trustee. We never have the bank in a control position. How about as executor? Same point. Same usually, usually we don't have a bank as the executor. Okay. It's a big fee for no use. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you do it right, but uh, but if we if it's necessary to have a bank, we limit the powers of the bank to where uh, they cannot control the money afterwards, the investment decisions, because mm-hmm. then you're leaving your heirs subject to poor investment control. Hope that helps. Thanks very much. All right. Yes, Jim. and if you have any other questions, Jim, you can call me at the office at 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. Thank you. Right and on. thanks for calling. All right, All right. Take care. You know, Doug, I, I was wondering, you know, we're, we're talking about executors, but generally what happens if, if people have not set up a trust and they have to go through the probate process, then someone acts as the executor of the estate, correct? Yes, any estate that needs to be probated means there's a will and there's the executor written into the will. If you die without a will and it needs to go through probate, then there's what's called, at least in some states, the administrator who's the equivalent of the executor who's appointed by the clerk of court. Well, that's all the money matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake. You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug and Linda in Raleigh at 872-7000. That's USA 7000. Listen again next Sunday at 605 for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis on 680 WPTF.